Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can find us any time of the day or night, anywhere around this great globe. We're not exactly like a pandemic, but you can find us everywhere because the internet is everywhere. Those Googles, those tubes just seem to find their way into everybody's homes. Not necessarily everybody's hearts, but into everybody's homes. And I'm really pleased to welcome back Matt Robeson is my guest today on today's show. Here we are in the midst of presidential primary season. The circus has moved on from New Hampshire and is moving around to other parts of the country. But really what's what's on my mind these days is is all the news is ablaze with the coronavirus. And as far as we know, according to our president, the coronavirus seems to be a democratic plot uh, to uh, sink the country. But he's on top of it. He's hollowed out every agency of the federal government that might need to deal with the coronavirus. But don't worry, because Vice President Pence has been put in charge of the American response to the coronavirus. And Vice President Pence did such a brilliant job in his home state of dealing with the HIV crisis, not, that he's probably just the perfect guy because he, of course, is a global health expert. Uh, he once caught a cold and uh, stayed in bed, so he knows how to deal with illness. And he is the perfect guy, the perfect guy to handle the American response. And after all, don't worry, because President Trump is in charge and in control. I mean, take a look at his excellent visit, his most excellent, his strongly excellent visit to the country of India, where another authoritarian, Prime Minister Modi, who wants basically to shut Muslims out of, of India, uh, welcomed him and was able to create just the kind of spectacle that our president really loves. A hundred thousand Indians all chanting and hollering in an open-air soccer stadium. Just the thing to do as coronavirus spreads around the globe. And the president was very pleased. He talked very strongly, very, very strongly, most strongly because he has the best words. And he talked very strongly about American-Indian relationships. And, of course, the day after he went, there are scores dead in the streets of India Maybe they held off for a day or so while he was there, but now in India, they're killing each other over religion. That's kind of just right up the president's alley. I mean, but he doesn't really care about human rights. He and he and Prime Minister Modi have bonded. It is the fellowship of authoritarians. It is the fellowship of those who are above the rule of law. It is the fellowship, which includes great leaders around the world like President Duterte of the Philippines and Kim Jong-un of North Korea and Erdogan of Turkey and, of course, the president's favorite, Vladimir Putin. You can just hear the conversation now on the hotline. President, president Trump, Putinsky, 
is Vladimir here. How are you doing in your country? You have coronavirus. We have none here yet because we shut all borders. Nobody gets in, nobody gets out. But it's not unusual because we have gulag. And so, you know, when we said nobody gets in, nobody gets out, we really mean it. We put them all in gulag. No problem here in Russia. I'm so sorry you are having political problems there. But we are helping. We are helping big time because Bernie Sanders, you know, the commie from Brooklyn, the taxi driver coming from Brooklyn. We are making sure that Democrats, they want Bernie Sanders. We will be big help to you because you run against Bernie. You say, we don't like socialists. Never mind you and me are great friends. I am happy to be socialist communist here in Russia, but never mind. Everybody love when you call Bernie socialist and down they go and we have each other to make oil deals again for the next four years. Should be terrific, No. Yet, da, I can't hear you. What? Oh, you're sneezing? Oh, wait, you're coughing? That's not good. You're coughing? That's 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 the real trouble with cough. Uh, President Trumpelinski, wait, doctors are coming? You're going to emergency room? Okay, we'll see you later. So, you can just see those kinds of hotline conversations happening as President Trump reaches out to global leaders to make sure that he is leading the world in the response to the coronavirus. Not. But, but I digress because I'm here with Matt, who's been listening to my rant, and we're really here to talk about politics. And since the last time, Matt, we talked, Bernie Sanders, who had uh, appeared to have won Iowa, assuming they could count, which they can't. Uh, he appeared to have won New Hampshire, where they can count, and they did. Um, he's now won in the caucuses in Nevada, where the count seems to have gone a little better than in Iowa. And does that mean he's now the prohibitive favorite, that, that it's a train that can't be stopped? All right, so all important caveats and disclaimers up front here, right? We're about to do a little bit of political forecasting, trying to foretell the future. Definitely sure to go wrong, right? It's like it's like a medical commercial disclaimer. If the symptoms of political prognostication last more than four hours, you should definitely call your doctor. All that being understood, you know, right now, if you look at a forecasting website that tries to factor in the polls into a model like 538, it gives Sanders about a 40% chance of winning the nomination outright. And the possibility of no majority, no one getting a majority, is also about a 40% chance. But I think, and I'd like to pitch you on the idea, that those figures probably undersell the odds of Sanders getting the nomination. I think he's a lot stronger than it looks. That's a, that's, that's, that's a real kick in the head for a lot of moderate people. He's a lot stronger than he thought. Ouch! Ouch! Wait a second. We're 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 you know all the moderates are c- trying to figure out how are we going to stop him, and here you are telling us that that it sounds like he's unstoppable. Well, okay. I, I have I have two planks of my reasoning here. One's mathematical. One's political. So I suggest let's do the math first. But I promise it's not like deep calculus. It's not deep math. There's just two numbers that I suggest that people keep in mind. One is 300, the other is 57. Now, why is 300 significant? That's about the lead in delegates that right now Bernie Sanders is projected to get 
after Super Tuesday on March 3rd. Now, look, the cookie could crumble lots of different ways. That's just that's just sort of what models are forecasting as of today. Well, that's a much bigger lead than it seems. And remember, as your listeners will have heard me discuss before, to win the nomination, you need to win just under 2,000 delegates to the Democratic 1997, Convention. 1997, I think. Uh, yes. Something good year, like that. Good year. But the way the Democrats do it is they award delegates proportionally. It's not winner take all. So let me give you an example of just how big a lead 300 really is. Take a state like Virginia. It awards about 100 delegates. So that's a nice round number. If you win Virginia, you don't win 100 delegates. If you did, it would be pretty easy to erase a 300-delegate lead. But let's say we're just down to Biden and Sanders, and Biden wins 60% to Sanders 40%. Well, he's only picking up 20 delegates in the race. And you have to do that 15 times in a row. And that's the kind of math that starts to work against uh, the other candidates, the other alternatives. The other number, and that's where the other number really comes in, that's that 57. Well, there was a great piece uh, from the analyst Philip Bump in the Washington Post. 57 is the percentage that Biden or Bloomberg would need to start winning after Super Tuesday to catch up to Sanders with that 300-delegate lead. Now, that is a huge uphill climb. So all caveats understood, but right now the math is definitely on Sanders' side unless something changes dramatically. So if I'm a non-mathematical guy, what you're telling me is that coming up to Super Tuesday, no matter what happens in South Carolina where Biden may hold on and seems to be doing okay and seems to be recovering, and some people are saying that Elizabeth Warren has resuscitated her campaign, so who knows, but... Putting all that aside, on Super Tuesday, it's looking like Bernie Sanders, or Bernie Sandernista, as some people are fond of calling him, um, will win some of the big states. Like, he could win New York, uh, and he could win California. Yeah, California is the big one. He's, he's expected to pick up a substantial uh, chunk of delegates in California. And if he pulls up what the way we think he's going to pull up, that substantial chunk and other places he's projected right now by the polls to win, give him a lead of 300 delegates. And because it's proportionate, not winner take all, that's an awful lot of ground for anybody else to make up. Um, but, But how does he get? an outright majority. Um, He's winning with a plurality and sometimes only barely. Um, And and look, I mean, there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party who are not all that comfortable with the idea of Bernie Sanders as the guy who's carrying the flag. I mean, this is... Whether it's true or not, and putting aside the truth of the matter, when Bernie Sanders goes on national television and praises Fidel Castro uh, for his educational system, it gives some people pause when he says, I'm not really a president. I'm, I'm, more, I'm more of an organizer in chief. I'm a rabble rouser. I'm going to go from place to place and make sure that the people are standing up against the millionaires and the billionaires. And Just because I have three houses, just because of that, I really, it's only a shack. 
I only have a shack on Lake Champlain. It's a small cottage. It only cost $600,000. It didn't cost millions and billions of dollars. I'm not like the millionaires. Oh, well, okay. Now it's just the billionaires I'm after. Anyway, people are not completely comfortable with the idea of Bernie Sanders as the Democratic flag bearer. Uh, there are people down ballot who are, who are, who are heading for the exits. I mean, it's, it, it's a crisis in the Democratic Party, a split between the left and the middle, so to speak. Yeah, totally agree with everything you said. And this is where I think the political part comes in. And I think the Democratic Party is going to end up really in a bind. You know, from the perspective of Sanders supporters, they really feel like in 2016, the party put their (laughs) thumb on the scale, the foot on the neck, and they took this away from Sanders last time. That's that's the perception. And they were so resentful that about 12 percent of Sanders primary voters in 2016 turned around in the general election and voted for Donald Trump. Well, what did that do? My goodness. Well, that's the right reaction oh, to have. Oh, I'm crying on the radio. Well, just just think about it this way. There were three states that swung the general election for Trump, right? The three Rust Belt states. Well, Trump won Wisconsin by 22,000 votes. And he got 51,000 former Sanders voters. Trump won Michigan by just 10,000 votes. And he got 47,000 former Sanders voters from the primary. He won Pennsylvania by 44,000 voters, and he got 116 former Sanders voters. Now, I'm not blaming Sanders voters here. I'm not Uh, blaming them. Lots of things went wrong in 2016. But you better believe the Democratic leaders. Look, you've been in these rooms as a former congressman, as a former national co-chair for Barack Obama. You've been in these rooms, and you know that Democratic leaders are well aware of this factor. If this comes down to the convention and it's close— they're going to face a really tough choice, and it becomes a dilemma. If you think about the prospect of losing all of those voters all over again, it's got to be very daunting. I'm daunted, and I'm just sitting here listening to the statistics, which I want to just point up a little bit when we come back uh, to Off the Record after a quick word from our sponsors. It's Off the Record on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live at nhtalkradio.com, archived there also. We're talking with Matt Robeson of a moreperfectunionforum.com, a blog that goes deep into politics. And Matt is also contributing to thealternet.org uh, um, now, so you can uh, read him and you can listen to him. He's been a frequent guest on Off the Record and is likely to take over the microphone when I go off to uh, declare my candidacy for the state uh, Senate in New Hampshire. That's a long way of saying we'll be right back after this. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we're also archived for your binge listening pleasure. You can revisit our past successes. You can listen to our previous rants. You can hear... You can hear all kinds of funny things. Why, why you might even hear Vladimir Putin checking in with his best friend, Donald Trumpolfinsky. And we're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Robeson of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com, a blog about politics, and he's a contributor to Alternet.org, so you can read all of his thoughts. 
when we left you a few short minutes ago, Matt was explaining the difference in votes that the Sanders-turned-Trump voters made in the last election. And the frightening thing about that analysis, which I had not really focused on before, was that in the wake of the loss in 2016, when everybody was trying to figure out, well, which, what, what factors were, were, were there, what was the cause of this electoral defeat? People looked at turnout of African-American voters. People looked at non-voters. People, and, and certainly there were cases to be made that, that the, um, the reluctance of African-American voters to come out in the battleground states and people who didn't vote made a big difference. But the statistics you've just told us about Sanders voters turned Trump voters is really the frightening, uh, the frightening statistic because that was a that gave that 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 was the reason you can say that's the reason Trump won those battleground states. And we're dealing with while you say we can't blame Bernie Sanders, his supporters are as in some ways as hard left ideologue, doctrinaire, Sanders or nobody, as Trump voters are on the right. And what we're seeing here is the extreme tribalism of many people who, when interviewed in 2016, said, well, I'm for Trump or Sanders. I can't tell which. And and they equated them. They're both populists. They're both on the extremes, but both trying to appeal to the forgotten working person in America, who now, after three years of Trump, maybe is tired of what they've been getting out of the White House and will will would go to would go to Bernie again. Um, but who knows? You know, I think you bring up a really interesting point, which is Paul Begala, the former uh, Bill Clinton strategist turned commentator on CNN. Isn't that, that where all good strategists go to die? Yes. You, you start as a staffer like me. That's sort of the larval form of becoming right, a strategist right, right. Yeah, on yeah. CNN. Um, but he said there are basically two kinds of elections. There are two kinds of messages you can run an election in American politics. Let's stay the course or time for a change. And you probably remember back in 2008 when you and I were out campaigning uh, both for you and for Barack Obama, and we were here in the New Hampshire primary, and we ran into lots of voters who said, hmm, I'm trying to decide between McCain and Obama. Well, what was that really saying? That was saying this is a change election. We want to see a fundamental change. We see both of these guys as change agents. So I think what you're putting your finger on here is a really interesting dynamic in politics, which is... I think it's real. I think that there's some evidence that it's real, that there are voters out there who could be attracted to both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. They see both of them as change agents, as fundamentally wanting to blow up the system. And that's where I think you get into the wheelhouse of Bernie Sanders' most fundamental argument about why he would be the strongest nominee. I'm not necessarily subscribing to this argument, but to be fair and objective about it, this is the heart of his argument. He is a change agent. He can speak to those voters in a way that no other Democratic nominee could. Mm-hmm. So what happens if we get to the convention and it's close? 
Well, that's that bind, right? That is the choice the Democratic leaders are going to make. Now, you've heard a lot of noises. I'm sure you have in internal Democratic circles, and it's been reported a little bit in the press that, you know, there is some strong consideration right now. Time to coalesce. Super Tuesday is going to be make or break. And uh, there's a lot of movement to stop Sanders. Right. Let's coalesce around Nancy Pelosi. But and, and well, we have a we have a Republican friend who's been pitching the idea for for months now privately. It's going to be Michelle Obama. We're going to have a white knight savior. It's going to be Michelle Obama. Not a bad argument, by the way. Yeah, right. Exactly. Here, Here she come. comes. <laughs> Here I come on yes. the white horse. I'm riding into the Democratic convention. Whoa. Yeah. Hello, everybody. I'm Michelle Obama and I'm the new white knight of the 21st century. It's it's not a crazy argument. I'll put it that way. But, you know, look, I, I think to your point, the issue for Democratic leaders is going to be if we do this, if it's even close and you've seen Sanders make this argument, look, if I've got a plurality, then I should get the nomination. If it's even close, then the Sanders faction of the party is going to feel once again like something got taken away from them by the Democratic Party leadership. They are not strongly attached to the Democratic Party uh, as an institution. And there's a very high chance. We already see in polling only 53 percent of Sanders supporters say that they will support the Democratic nominee, whoever it is, if it's not Sanders. That's a frightening prospect. So it sounds like it sounds like. There's an argument that says, okay, Democratic establishment, you, you, you out, out to lunch, overblown, fat and happy, PAC-driven, fossil fuel-driven organization, you Democratic National Committee, you pigs. It's time for you just to shut up, fold up, and go away. And I'll tell you why, because even if you can't find any positive reason to do it, there's a negative reason. And the negative reason is this. If you have any hope of keeping any Democrats uh, happy and keeping a Democratic Party for any 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 sense that you might accomplish something, if not now, then later, you can't afford to upset all of those Bernie Sanders voters. You can't afford it if you're really serious about getting rid of Donald Trump. And if that really is the goal and any Democrat will do, then you can't afford the, to upset the Bernie Sanders followers who will go and vote for Trump rather than rather than Joe Biden or certainly Bloomberg. I mean, they won't do it. Bernie's already said he won't take his money. But you want you want one of these moderate candidates. Well, you're going to lose again because you'll lose all of Bernie's. The only chance you now have is to go with Bernie, uh, hope that he can inspire younger voters and and create that coalition that he talks about. Um, and you gotta you gotta buy his argument. There, you have no choice. You have to stick with Sanders. Sanders, and you can't afford another replay of 2016 where your thumb, your foot, your elbow, your knee, and your tongue is on the scale for somebody else. You gotta just take all those things off the scale and go with the flow. You created it. You invited him to the debates. You let him into the party. You let him caucus with your people in the Senate. You're stuck with him. I, you know, I think what could easily happen here 
if things kind of continue to play out in this Sanders versus some kind of alternative, and we end up in this no majority or very, very close majority, maybe the other way, I think what you could end up with is an argument. Let me, let me just make the argument to you as if I were trying to present a reasoned, I, I, I will be Sanders' advocate here. Um, I, I'm going to paint the blue linings playbook version of here's how we win with Sanders. Don't you, don't you want to argue against him first? I, I, I let's let's just let's just give the good news, right? For Democrats that are freaking out right now about the possibility that you know maybe maybe we're going to end up with Sanders, and and you know I've heard all this stuff about well we can't possibly win with him. Here's the argument: the argument is, look, you spend so much time and effort in campaigns trying to get voters who are probably with you but may not show up to vote to actually show up to vote. And every one of those people that you get counts once in your column. You get one more vote for your side. Well, what's more rare, what's a lot harder, is to actually convert people, right? To take people out of the other column, put them in your column. It's like you're playing a game of dodgeball. If you hit someone on the other side with a ball, then you've gotten another vote in your column. You've taken them off the other side. But if you catch a ball from the other side, it's a twofer, right? You take someone from the other side, you get someone back on yours. So the argument for Sanders, I think their best argument, their strongest argument, is you take those numbers that I presented in those three key Rust Belt states earlier of people who voted for Sanders in the primary, Trump in the general in 2016, and you flip them around and you say, there's your twofer. You're taking those votes out of Donald Trump's column, you're putting them back in a Sanders Democratic column, that is a very powerful leverage point mathematically in your chances to win in those key swing and states. And there's some polling that supports Sanders over Trump in those key states. That's 100% right. And look, I think that there are also arguments. There's actually a political scientist, uh, Brendan Nyquist, who's at uh, Dartmouth uh, here in New Hampshire, who's pointed out that those kinds of state-based head-to-head matchup polls are not super predictive at this stage of the game. But all of that disclaimer understood. Yes, there's a Quinnipiac poll from last week that showed Sanders beating Trump in both Michigan and Pennsylvania. There's plenty of polling showing Sanders beating Trump nationally. And overall, he seems to be faring about as strongly as a Joe Biden. All caveats understood. That's not super predictive at the stage, but it's also not like a knockout, hands-down case against Sanders as the nominee. I mean, I just not to throw cold water on your brilliant and persuasive argument for Sanders, but if you take a look at those same voters, uh, the white working class voters who the polls are saying are for Sanders, and you think about where they may be on social issues with him— um, where they may be when when he's called a socialist um, and where they may be in Pennsylvania, for example, which is uh, seeing its economy uh, booming because of fracking. And you have Sanders saying, no more fracking. We're shutting it down. Those corporations, they are fossil fuel corporations are done with me. I'm talking to you. Fossil fuel, you're done. I'm coming in. You're done. And and they may they may that may that may flip that equation. A hundred percent. And look, I, I have certainly taken my best swing here at presenting the case for. Yeah, there's a there's a chance. I'm saying there's a chance uh, if you have Sanders at the top of the ticket. 
That being said, there is a strong case against Sanders. There right? absolutely 100% is. And look, I think the 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 biggest one, the the biggest knock on a Sanders nomination is we have a ton of research that shows that the biggest effect of having a more I don't want to use the word extreme necessarily, but a more ideological uh, a, a stronger ideology to one side or the other. The biggest effect of having that person at the top of your ticket or as your nominee for an office is that it inspires voters on, on the, the other, other side. side. That's the that's the biggest thing is, you know, notwithstanding the success of the 2008 Barack Obama campaign, hope and change are actually not the best psychological motivators. Fear and anger consistently are. And the biggest effect that you see consistently, and, and political scientists have studied this extensively, is you have a more extreme nominee on your side. It inspires fear, anger, outrage on the other side. America will never be a socialist country. America will never be a socialist country. Well... Yes, but there's a lot of video that seems to uh, tell a slightly different story. So, I, look, you know, I'm I'm much more in the camp of this is a problem for Democrats. Um, you and I certainly know a heck of a lot of swing state, swing district Democrats down the ticket who are nervous as heck. You have represented a district of that kind. And, you know, it's it, it's all evidence is that it is a problem. However, to be fair, there is a case, and I think it would be fair to placate nervous Democrats somewhat by saying all is not necessarily lost if Bernie Sanders ends up being the nominee. We're going to take another break to hear from the folks who keep our station on the air. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes. Uh, this is my real voice, and we're talking with Matt Robeson of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com, a blog devoted to politics. Matt also contributes to Alternet.org, so you can read his thinking in print for those of you who may not be listening to the show. Uh, it's off the record. We will come back after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com. So go down those googly tubes, and you can find us there streaming on your computer. You can find our shows archived, and we're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We are talking with Matt Robeson of a AmorePerfectUnionForum.com and a contributor to Alternet.org about politics. We're talking about the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. How did an octogenarian, self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist with a protruding jaw, not enough hair, a stooped posture... Um, and uh, and and too many teeth on his on his lower jaw, get into the lead in the Democratic primary process. Everybody's complaining that Joe Biden was too old, but golly, Bernie's seventy eight. Bloomberg is seventy seven. Uh, Bernie is grumpy. He harangues people, but the young people love him, and the young people seem to love him because he wants to take 
down the establishment. He is preaching a kind of revolutionary systemic change, which finally brings the Democratic Party back to its roots, essentially, saying, if we are the party of working people, then it's time that working people had a leader and policies that reflected the victory that the working people will win if I, Bernie Sanders, am the Democratic nominee. I can build a coalition. I can bring in young people, all kinds of people who haven't voted. I am seeing excitement across the country because they know that the millionaires and the billionaires have run this country for too long. The fossil fuel companies, the insurance companies, and all the big pharma know that Bernie Sanders is coming for them because I have the support of the working people of this country, and it is time for the working people of this country to have that control. So that's Bernie's pitch, and it seems to be doing pretty well in the Democratic primaries. He's racked up victory after victory, and we're trying to figure out the arguments for and against him and what the poor Democratic Party does. I mean, I'm watching Tom Perez, who is the chair of the Democratic National Committee. I am watching his head explode in real time. I am watching him try to say he is neutral, to try to say he's maintaining an even keel. But I can guarantee you, folks, down in D.C., in those in those hidden back cigar-smoke-filled rooms at the DNC, there is no joy in Mudville. They are scrambling to try to figure out how they can save and perpetuate their establishment. And it may not happen this time. We may get a Democratic nominee who matches Donald Trump for the elegance and simplicity of his message, which is going to be Donald Trump is a fraud. He's a billionaire. All he cares about is billionaires. I care about you. Look at my record. I was arrested in 1961. I've been arrested a lot of times. I know how to rabble rouse. I will bring out the people. We are against the billionaires. They better hide because we're coming for them. And who knows? After an exhausting three years with Donald Trump, that may be that may be enough. It may be. And that, absolutely. I mean, it, again, it goes back to this. There's only two kinds of messages you can run with in American politics. Let's stay the course or time for a change. And if we're up for another change election, then maybe, maybe Bernie Sanders is best equipped to carry that message of where I represent change. I represent the real kind of change that you're looking for. And by the way, one of the real regrets, um, a guy you and I know pretty well, Jesse Ferguson, who was uh, the communication, one of the key communications people for uh, Hillary Clinton, said one of his key regrets about 2016 was that they ran against Trump as a vulgarian, as sort of a, a travesty of a human being. They should have run against him as a plutocrat. They should have run against him with exactly the message that you just pretty accurately lampooned there, that he's a billionaire, that he's a crony capitalist out to help his friends. By the way, look at his pardons behavior over the last two weeks. Pretty good case in point. So, you know, again, 
Hey, and with the sinking <laughs> stock market and the coronavirus, if we have a collapse of the economic system, given the incompetence that he's now baked into the cake at the federal government, that may uh, play well into Democrats' hands. So far be it from me to wish more plunge in the stock market or coronavirus, but it could be good political news for Democrats. Well, I, you know, it could also turn the argument more toward what Joe Biden has been saying, which is let's have a return to normalcy, people. Let's let's reachieve some stability here. Maybe this isn't a change election so much as a Oh, my gosh, the world is a restoration. blowing up around us. A restoration. There's a, there's, di- there's a difference between a change and a restoration. It's uh, it's not exactly stay the course, but it's, folks, let's get rid of the new normal and get back to normal. That's exactly Just right. the normal dysfunction, the normal corruption is just really preferable exactly to the craziness right. we got now. And that's an argument for the more moderate candidates. Certainly the more uh, moderate um, kind of establishment, if you will. And, you know, look, it brings up one more question on this topic. I think the the million-dollar question in Democratic circles that's probably running circles through Tom Perez's mind right now is what is Barack Obama going to do other than, you know, driving the car for Michelle Obama to to ride in as the uh, 11th hour nominee? That's right. Uh, is he going to try to use his unmatched credibility in the party to try and forge some kind of a compromise? My guess is he keeps his powder pretty dry, um, at least up until the very end. And if he does anything, I mean, you know, President Obama, he's going to be very restrained about it. But that is the big question. So if Democrats win, what happens? Glad you mentioned, because I just wrote something about this, and I have— Uh, I have a provocative suggestion here. I propose that they shouldn't focus on global warming, even though the earth is on fire. They shouldn't focus on health care, even though 27 million Americans lack it. They shouldn't focus on consumer or student debt, even though Americans' debt is at record levels again, something like $13.9 trillion at last count. I think they should do one thing and only one thing first. Which is? I propose that they should save democracy first. You remember, remember 1999, oh, Bill Clinton? Oh, that we have. Wait a second. Let me just, let, let's just, let's just pause for a quick moment. Save democracy save first. Save democracy first. What an interesting bumper sticker that makes for a campaign. Well, it's the kind of thing, it's interesting that you say that because it is not as catchy among Democrats. <laughs> but we've actually had an acid test about pro-democracy reforms on the ballot in state initiatives in 2018. Mm-hmm. And they are wildly popular with voters. 14 out of 16 state initiatives to protect voting rights passed, including restoring voting rights to felons in Florida, not something that you would think of as a hands-down political winner. Not only that, but all of these initiatives passed in blue, red and purple states, and they were highly bipartisan. They won in states like Missouri, in states like North Dakota, in states like Utah that were landslides for Donald Trump. So not a great bumper sticker, but it is pretty great politics for Democrats. So you get 100 days as president. You right. get you get 100 days. After that, it, you're just riding on the gravy train because it's that 100 days where you, where you, where you, where you get stuff done. Remember Barack Obama? Oh, I think it's even worse than that. Yeah, Bar- I mean, Barack Obama passed health care. It took him 14 months. Correct. Spent all his political capital. But meanwhile, meanwhile, the administration 
was also working on saving the world economy from going into the tank, lest we forget people. The stock market at, uh, when Obama took office was at 6,000, Dow Jones average, 6,000. So while it ran itself up to 29,000, it's now back to 25,000. It was at 6,000 when Barack Obama came into office. Absolutely. I, I think you bring up a killer point here, which is it's underappreciated that whoever gains power in Washington in this day and age may only get one shot. Now, let's let's think about the Democrats dream scenario. You have a Democratic president. You retain the House. Let's say you take the Senate or you get to 50 50. So you get the tiebreaker vote with the vice president. You still probably only get one shot. And that's in part because, as you said, major legislation takes a long time to pass. The other thing is that there's a well-documented rebound effect. After you gain power, just by trying to pass policy initiatives that align with your party's platform and values, you create a political blowback effect. That's why the party out of power has gained seats in the midterm election in every election since 1946. So, so you're going to come in and you're going to do one thing. So first of all, I'm going to make college free. I'm going to get rid of all student debt. That's going, to take, that's going to take a huge amount of political capital. You're going to have to find a way to pay for it. So you roll back the tax cut for the billionaires. You put in a, big ta- a bigger tax on capital gains. You raise the corporate uh, tax rate, and you bring back the uh, estate tax in a big way. In the midterm elections two years from then, Okay, Democrats, nobody run because you're just going to get wiped out. Absolutely. It all get, do you remember you used to say this line when you were running for office in 2008? You said, look, we had an economy built on a foundation of sand and it all got washed away. If you did build, I say that? You did used to say that. That's pretty that was smart. part of your stump that speech. That was pretty smart. Well, you know what? If you build any of these important policy endeavors on a foundation of sand, they're all going to get washed away. You have to build a firmer foundation, and that means save democracy first. And what I'm talking about here is the incredible level of uh, loopholes, peccadilloes, problems, and downright underhanded maneuvering that we've seen build up in the last 20 years that has made it fundamentally uh, skewed, our, our whole political system. So. You know, unless you address those kinds of issues, and we can talk about what that means, unless you address those kinds of issues, everything else you try and do would be for naught. So whatever happens, if Democrats take power, the important thing is to galvanize public opinion in a real way that will be the firm foundation, the underpinnings, the concrete blocks of whatever policy they wisely try to put in. And for your money, you suggest that that going with meat and potatoes, economic policies of some sort that affect a broad cross-section of Americans, fixing college debt, or making college more affordable, or some economic policy is going to be job one because if you build a consensus around that, it's a better long-term prospect for Democrats than trying to take on 
overtly and and with a lot of fanfare, the huge issues like climate change or health care. Take climate change. This is a generational endeavor. Even something like the Green New Deal, it would be built in steps. There would be multiple fronts you'd be fighting that war on. You know, if you take the example of the Social Security Act, well, it was passed, you know, 1935, but it was amended an average of 11 times a year in the subsequent years. It, 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 these kinds of things, fighting climate change, saving the planet, will be a generational struggle. And you're not going to be able to do that if every step forward you take gets washed back out. The problem that Democrats face is that in 2018, they won 12 million more votes and they still lost Senate seats. By 2040, 70 percent of Americans are going to be represented by just 30 of the 100 senators. When you have a democracy that's that skewed with that much minority power, then you have no ability to build that kind of a generational effort to tackle any of the big issues. Matt Robeson, you're a smart guy thinking outside the box here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet. We've been talking with Matt Robeson, the author of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com, a blog devoted to the deeper issues in politics and some off-the-wall, out-of-the-box thinking that just may have the answers for Democrats. Matt also is a contributor to the Alternate .org, where you can find his writings. Don't go away. We'll be right back to wrap up after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com. We've had a great conversation with Matt Robeson of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com, a blog devoted to politics. Who Matt is also a writer for the Alternet.org, where you can find his writings and uh, it will bemuse you, amuse you, make you think. It will tickle your brain. We have a great time on the show with Matt. We, we had a visit during this show from both Bernie Sanders and from Vladimir Putin. I can't wait to see the two of them get together. I'm talking to you, Vladimir. You are not a friend of mine. Oh, Bernie. Yeah. Comrade, comrade Bernie, you and I are both, you know, we are socialists together. Why, 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 why do you hate me? I'm telling you why, Vladimir, because if I don't hate you, I don't look good at home. Bernie, Bernie, don't worry. We help you get elected again. We love you very much. Anyway, you can just see the dialogue over the hotline. I'd rather not. Um, Vladimir Putin is no friend of the United States. Unfortunately, the president of the United States currently doesn't see it. But we'll be back with more Off the Record next week on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet for your archived and listening pleasure at nhtalkradio.com. And in the coming days and weeks, you may be hearing more from Matt Robeson, who is probably going to keep this chair warm when I declare, because I am heading that way, um, for a local race. And then I won't be able to have the microphone anymore, and that's going to be too bad. But if all works out, I'll come back. See you later, folks. See you next week.